thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, that's an appropriate verse because we're learning how to rightly divide the word of truth in our study on covenants and dispensations. And we're in our uh, third class on this, so before we get started, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to uh, get into uh, the Word under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. One announcement, we started our class, our Bible study class, how to use Greek tools to get a little deeper into the Word on Sunday night. We did the hard, dull, boring stuff Sunday night. We learned the Greek alphabet. You know, if you survive the first class and manage to come back, it all gets a lot better than that. That's just the, that's just the kind of rugged, dull, boring part at the beginning. But uh, we had a good time, and I was uh, ple- pleasantly surprised. We had about 20 people showed up, so that was good. And uh, so we're developing there. Okay, well, let's... Uh, I gave everybody a couple extra minutes to... Uh, get in since people are running a little late this evening, so we're uh, exercising a little grace. Okay, let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer before we begin. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word and to understand the overall panorama of your plan for human history, that you have a plan, it's thought out, it's organized, it has precise purposes in each era, age, and dispensation. Father, we pray that as we study these things, we could be challenged with the significance of our own role now in the church age and the unique spiritual life that you have uh, provided for us and all of the wonderful spiritual assets that we have more than any other believer in human history. Now, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us understand these things and challenge us with these truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We are studying dispensations, and we have seen in the past... um, Two lessons, just by way of introduction. We began by studying the words and their meanings, and the dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomos, which are oikonomia, two different nouns, same root, that refers to the concept of administration. Uh, if you break it down, it comes from two distinct words, oikos, meaning house, and namos, See, I write this Greek up here now, and um, the guys who were here on Sunday night now can read my Greek scribble. Right, Tom? <laughs> Oikos and namas. House law. And the analogy is just like when you were 
growing up in your parents' home, they had different rules depending on how old you were. And as time went by, rules shifted and changed. And the same basic thing can be said about human history. God has uh, broken down human history into different sequential periods, each of which has certain distinct features. And these are discernible and identifiable. And the center point of all history is, of course, the cross. So we are going to be studying God's plan for history. And as we look at the various dispensations or ages, and I'll be using terms like ages, epochs, eras, dispensations interchangeably, even though I made a point that oikonomos emphasizes administration and doesn't really have a temporal idea. You have other words like chronos and and ionos that do have the temporal idea that... um, uh, what we have is uh, something that moves, that, that specifically shifts each dispensation. And that is that God gives new revelation. And this is the idea of progressive revelation, that God has not given everything to mankind, although, and this is pure speculation on my part, I do believe there was some sort of canon of Scripture before the fall, I mean before the flood, And I think there was some level of of canon uh, before uh, God called out Abraham. We know that even during the period of Israel that the writers of Scripture refer to the book of the wars, the book of Jasher, several other writings that the people were familiar with but have not survived into the church age. So obviously God did not intend for them to be part of the Old Testament canon, but they certainly were significant when Moses writes Genesis. He repeatedly uses the phrase, and these are the, gen- the generations of. And that word in the Hebrew is toledot, and those are the famous toledot sections. And it, toledot means a record. And it seems to indicate that when Moses sat down on the plains of Moab in about 1406, 1405 B.C. to write the Pentateuch, that he had before him records and scrolls that dated back all the way to Abraham, or at least they, um, they were copies of documents that had gone all the way back before the flood, and he used those under the teaching ministry and inspiration ministry of God the Holy Spirit to write the, uh, the Pentateuch, to write the Torah and record all of the historical events of, of um, Genesis. So there's a progress to Revelation. And what moves, what shifts these dispensations is that God changes his management strategy and he usually lays that out in terms of a legal document called a covenant. A covenant, which is the Hebrew word berith, B-E-R-I-T-H, or the Hebrew word diatheke. D-I-A-T-H-E-K-E. These are long E's. Diatheke. And that is basically a term for a legal contract. A legal contract. Now, last time, we got right up to the point of looking at the first contract and the first dispensation. And this first contract is called the Edenic 
covenant because it takes place during the period when Adam and the woman, and she is not called Eve until after the fall. Ish and Isha, Ish is the Hebrew for man, Isha for woman. Ish and Isha are the uh, names used, Adam and Isha in the garden. And after the fall, she is named Chava, which means, which comes over into English as Eve, which means mother of the living. So you have the Edenic covenant, and that is in effect during a period of time from the creation of man in Genesis 1, 25 through 28 to the fall of man in Genesis 3, uh, about verses 4, 5, and 6. And this I call the period of perfect environment. Period of perfect environment. It is sometimes called the period of innocence. Innocence sometimes communicates to people the idea of naivete or something less, uh, less uh, positive. So I like the idea of perfect environment because man is in perfect environment and it is in perfect environment where there is no sin that his volition uh, for or against God is tested at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, what caused, last time we looked, we've looked at, there's really three major overall subjects that I am, I want to pull together in this study of dispensations. And the first is the whole idea of dispensations and the development of God's plan and program for human history. The second is the mechanism that advances the, uh, each age from age to age, and that's covenants. And then the third is to answer the overall question of why God has, why God even began human history and what its function is and how the dispensations relate to, to this overall issue. And that overall issue we call the angelic conflict. The angelic conflict. So we want to pull in one more factor. Uh, we in order to appreciate all of this because it is the, it's the angelic conflict that is going to provide the framework for understanding why each dispensation has the tests that it does and why there is this incremental advance through history and, and the emphases in each age and each era. So let's just begin with a few things. Now, of course, whenever I get to get into something like the angelic conflict or spiritual warfare, it seems like everything seems to go a little haywire. And I was just getting ready this evening to print out my notes on the computer, and uh, I was switching from one computer to the other and took out the disk and popped it into my laptop, and the laptop said, no, I'm not taking this disk, no way at all. And so I ran over to... uh, Sextons, because my other computer won't hook up to the printer. And I uh, took it over to Sextons and emailed it back to myself so I could print it, and it never got there. So I had to give Jim Davey, give it to him here as soon as I got it, and say, go home and print it off on your computer. So we finally got the notes here, so we have uh, everything squared away. But it seems like Satan's the prince in the power of the air, so he probably just reached down and pinched those telephone lines so the uh, information wouldn't get through. 
No, I got on the computer myself. I wasn't going to trust him. Okay, Genesis 1.1. Now, there is a lot of controversy on this verse, and I'm not referring necessarily to the uh, controversy between creation and evolution. We are not going to get sidetracked by those issues right now. I accept the six days of creation as literal days, literal 24-hour periods based on Hebrew grammar and a number of uh, many other factors in the Scriptures. And we have discussed some of those at length. Genesis 1.1 starts off with the Hebrew word Bereshith, which is also the title for the book of Genesis. The Jews always titled their books with the first word in the book. It's called Bereshith in the beginning. It is a um, compound of a preposition ba plus the noun Reshith which means first, so it means in the beginning. The beginning of what? And I think this is the beginning of the space-time continuum. Prior to this, there is no uh, second or third heavens, only the first heaven. In Second Corinthians, Paul speaks about the fact that he was taken into the, um, or the third heaven. Uh, first heaven is planet Earth and the environment around planet Earth. Second heaven is the universe, the stars, the solar system, everything included in the, in the universe. And then the third heaven is the throne room of God. When God spoke to create the heavens and the earth, that is what created the space-time continuum. Space and time are correlative to one another. In Hebrew, you do not have a phrase a word, a single word like you do in English, universe. So you have to use what's called a merism, which is uh, two different words that together encompass the totality of something. For example, in the Psalms it talks about meditating on God, God's word day and night. They're opposite words, day and night, but together they encompass the totality of time. So what you have here is heavens and the earth... Together they encompass the totality of the universe. And that tells us that the universe, therefore, is finite. That's just one of many observations we can make that are, that's contrary to the uh, evolutionary scheme. In the beginning, God is the subject of the verb bara, which means, which only is used of God's creative activity. Only God is ever the subject of the Hebrew verb bara. There are three different verbs for create, bara, asa, and yatser, and only God baras. And in this context, in comparison with other scriptures like Hebrews 11.1, we know that this is ex nihilo creation, which means creation out of nothing. Bara doesn't inherently mean that, but the context indicates that. God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth, and that refers to the beginning of time. Now, of course, the question that arises is when exactly did this occur? And among conservative evangelicals, there are basically two views. The first view, and by conservatives, I am excluding everybody who's trying to compromise in some way with evolution. That includes people who hold a day-age view, 
the day age view is, are people who try to think, say that, well, this uh, fits with evolution so that each, each day really wasn't a literal 24 hour period, it just speaks of a per- long period of time so that um, uh, the first day you have a long evolutionary period to, to uh, correlate with a certain geological age and then you have a second day and that's another period. But it had, there are a lot of problems with that, not the least of which is that on the third day you have the um, uh, or the fourth day you have the creation of uh, plant life but it is not until the fifth day I believe that you have the creation uh, or the third day you have the creation of vegetation and then it's not until the day after that you have the creation of the sun which provides for um, uh, photosynthesis. So how in the world could plant life have survived for thousands of years without photosynthesis? So that's just one discrepancy along with the fact that whenever you have the word yom, the Hebrew word yom for day, used in conjunction with either a definite article or a cardinal numeral like one, two, three, it always refers to a literal 24-hour period. And then the text itself defines day by saying, and it was evening and morning one day. So it clearly defines day in terms of uh, dusk and dawn. So that makes it clear that we're talking about 24-hour periods. Now, uh, I reject any idea that evolution and creation uh, can be somehow brought together and merge. They are two opposite, antithetical, competing views of the universe, and there is no way that you can bring them together whatsoever. But what happened, now just to give you a little history, Al, I'm going to run out of stuff up here, I know it. What, um, what happened in history is that Years and years ago, and I've been able to trace this back into at least the late um, early Middle Ages, 9th, 10th century uh, rabbis uh, interpret Genesis 1-1 as the original creation. And then the restoration did not occur until verse, the beginning was in verse 2, so there is some period of time lapse between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. In fact, a rather famous Englishman by the name of John Milton wrote a poem, excellent poem, filled with doctrine called Paradise Lost. And uh, Milton held to this view as well. And into this lapse of time is placed the fall of Lucifer and Satan's trial before God. And so that the creation of man in what becomes uh, six days of restoration plus one rest day becomes a period of recreation or restoration of planet Earth in relation to Satan's fall. And that view uh, was, was popular. It wasn't the only view. That view was popular for many, many years. And then in 18, 
uh, I think it was in 1827, but I'm not positive, somewhere in the 1820s or 1830s, a Scottish Presbyterian theologian by the name of Thomas Chalmers came along, and by that time you had the development of historical geology and the uh, thesis that there were lengthy periods of time and that the earth really wasn't just uh, 5,000 years old or 6,000 years old, as most people believed up till about the middle of the 1700s. Most scientists believed that. In fact, all of modern science was established on the principle that Genesis was taken literally. In fact, modern science could not be modern science if it weren't that it was built on a foundation of a literal Genesis because that gives you absolutes. If all you have is variables, you can't get science. And that's exactly the problem with uh, modern science is that they act as if there are absolutes when they reject uh, a priori the existence of any kind of absolute. You know, if you say X plus 1 equals Y, something in there has to be an absolute or non-variable uh, in order to have the equation make sense. So modern science assumes stability when it has no legitimate basis for assuming stability uh, on a basis of chance plus time brings order theory of, of uh, Darwinian evolution. But what Chalmers did was really, uh, was really disastrous. Uh, at that time in history, the historical geologists, the evolution crowd, this is before Darwin, was saying, oh, the earth is obviously older than five or 6,000 years. It's, it's probably 25,000 or, or maybe 50,000. Well, that's not really a, a, a tremendously long period of time. And so there were attempts to try to figure out how to stretch Genesis in from 5,000 to 25 to 50,000. And one of those attempts was made by Chalmers, and he said, well, obviously what we have here in this gap between Genesis 1-1 is all of the historical uh, geologic ages. And we'll just cram those in there along with all the fossils and uh, all of uh, all the ape men and all this other stuff that they come up with, and we'll just insert that between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and and make that 25 or 50,000 years, and we solve the problem. Well, there's a number of problems with his, with his theory, not the least of which is one I alluded to in our study of 1 Corinthians 15 the other morning, and that is that and that passage is dealing with physical death, i.e., and resurrection from physical death. It's not a passage when it talks about in Adam all die, Christ all shall be made alive, because the context is resurrection from, the physical, from physical death. It's not talking about spiritual death. So when it says, in Adam all die, it is simply referring to the fact that physical death is a consequence of Adam's spiritual death penalty. And if you have anything, and a fossil is caused by something dying, if you have anything die prior to Genesis 1-2 are really prior to Genesis 3.6, when Adam eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then death is no longer the consequence, physical death is no longer the consequence of spiritual death. And spiritual death, therefore, is not a, uh, an abnormality in the creation order, but death and suffering are normal. And that enters into the whole philosophical problem 
of evil. And that's why you'll always hear somebody, just warn you a little bit on this, you'll always hear somebody come along and they'll say, well, I don't know about you Christians. You know, you, you can't, how can a loving God let all these horrible things happen? So, well, you don't have a God at all. To you, to you, sin, I mean, suffering and evil has got to be normal. As a Christian, we say it's abnormal. You may not like my answer, but your answer is worse, unbeliever. Always remember that. They may attack us, but their solution is infinitely worse because for them, evil and suffering is just normal creation. Death is the mechanism of evolution, so it's just as good as life. You don't have a value system to distinguish them. And so that's why um, social Darwinism came along, became a foundation for something called uh, the National Democrat Socialist Party in Germany, otherwise known as Nazism. And uh, now everybody wants to reject social Darwinism because it logically led to to Nazism, but they don't have a logically consistent reason for rejecting it. Anyway, Chalmers was one of many uh, Christian evangelicals who are are accommodationists. And they try to accommodate the Bible and compromise with the findings of what was coming to be known as modern science. Now, the thing is that the entire fossil record, it's no longer set in a purest place anywhere on the earth, and the entire fossil record has to be taken as a whole. I mean, some places you have more complex fossils lower than you, and simple fossils at the top. Other places they're all jumbled up in different orders. But the entire fossil record has to be taken uh, as one consistent whole. So you can't come in and say, well, some were laid down here and some were laid down at the flood. Because which ones are which? I mean, they, they all had to be, because of the intermingling of all the different fossils, they all had to be the result of the same cataclysm. So you can either put them here or you can put them in Genesis 6 through 9 as a result of the flood, which makes a a lot more sense and fits uh, a lot of scientific observation. And we've studied that and you've heard uh, people like Charlie Clough come in and teach on on flood geology. Uh, The only point I want to make here is that that the other view that is popular among evangelicals and is held by the creation, most creationists in the Creation Research Society is the view that these, that Genesis 1-1 is merely the creation of, uh, of the raw materials of the earth. So they would take, uh, for example, they would go down to verse 2 and they would say that that phrase, the earth was formless and void... Uh, they would translate that now the earth was uh, 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 without form, was unformed and unfilled is the term they like to use. Unformed and unfilled, taken from Weston Field's doctoral dissertation, which he published and uh, argued against my view. And I don't think cogently or I disagree with his conclusions at any rate. And... Um, And one of the things that these folks always come down to is that Satan could not have fallen yet because God at the end of the six days pronounces everything very good. He looks at the creation and says it's very good. And if it was very good, there couldn't have been any sin there. Well, that unfortunately 
betrays an ignorance of uh, Hebrew grammar and Hebrew word meanings. Um, but this is the view that, that Genesis 1-1 is simply the beginning and Genesis 1-1 through the end of the chapter represents seven uh, literal days with no, um, no gap or no time lapse between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And so that the chaos of 1-2 is not a chaos that resulted from a judgment but is a chaos of simply the uh, unformed raw materials that God had put into the universe, and each successive day begins to bring order to those uh, to that raw material. Now we're going to look at some scripture here to show why I have particular problems with that view, and uh, why I. I don't think it's it's uh, correct, but one thing you'll learn is that everybody who holds to this view, and I've had I've been arguing with people over this subject since I was 14 years old. I majored in Hebrew at Dallas Seminary for the very purpose of trying to solve the problem. I am not a neophyte at this. I spent one summer at Camp Penal, and my roommate was a guy by the name of John Morris who is Henry Morris's son. Who uh, Henry Morris was the author with uh, uh, John Whitcomb of the Genesis Flood. I've talked with, and they both argue against this view, and I've talked with both of them on the phone. So I have been around the barn a few times on this. I have um, uh, studied everything out, and um, I understand what their reasoning is. I, I disagree with it, and I, they don't have answers for my questions either. And the, ultimately, they always come back to, well, God said it was very good. And just a point, I, and I recently, in, in, in the last five years, two excellent Hebrew dictionaries have been published. One is called the Hebrew Aramaic Lexicon, which is a four-volume work that is a, uh, a recent Development that takes into account all of the 20th century uh, scholarship in Hebrew. Another one is called the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis, which is a mouthful. And it's about four volumes as well and has lengthy discussions. And in both of these, they point out that while the word uh, tov, the Hebrew word tov, T-O, this does not have a pointing there, so it's pronounced soft like a V, T-O-V, can refer to that which is morally perfect. It does not necessarily do so. And if you examine the text carefully, you will see that God called the... Um, at the let me see here. Let's find our first use of it. Then we come down to... Um, Verse 12, and it says that God, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, at this point, he has separated the light from the darkness. He has um, uh, put an expanse of atmosphere between the waters above and the waters below. He has... uh, gathered the waters on the earth into one place so the dry land would appear, and he caused the earth to sprout forth vegetation. That was on the third day. Now, how many of those things are moral? 
How many of those things, land, sea, light, darkness, how many of those things are moral or exercise volition? None of them. So when you say they're good, you can't be making a moral judgment. You can. The other main meaning of tov is that something fits the plan. In other words, if you guys who are in construction, you go out and you're going to build something and you've got your blueprint and when you build it and it fits the blueprint and you look at the job and says, okay, I'm completed with the task, it's exactly what I intended, it's good. It's tow. Not a moral judgment at all. And that is the sense of good here. In fact, even the word, it's opposite, which is ra, which is the Hebrew word for evil, often has the, does not always have a morally evil connotation. Often it simply refers to something that is non-functional or doesn't work. So just because you see these words, don't try to import into them meaning that is outside the text. Now, what we have in the Scriptures in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, and in Ezekiel 28, 12 and following, is a description of a creature who goes through a, a mammoth fall that reverberates through the universe. Isaiah 14:12 reads, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. And this is, um, uh, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Now that phrase, son of the dawn, and I think in the, in the uh, uh, King James Version was translated Lucifer, and so that's where we get the name Lucifer. But that is uh, uh, not what it says in the Hebrew. It does not give him a name. So there is really no name, but we've assigned that name of Lucifer, a light bearer to him on the basis of this title, Son of the Dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, and here we have the famous five I wills of Satan. This exemplifies Satan's mental attitude toward God of, of antagonism to God, his lack of humility, which translates into arrogance, and his attempt to supplant God with himself and to do and function as a God. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, which is an idiom for the angels. He would rule the angels. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. And that is a term that was taken over from the mythology of the Canaanites, that there was a mountain in the north of, of, uh, of uh, Tyre and Sidon in the north of what's modern Lebanon. And that was where the gods lived. And it's comparable to Mount Olympus in Greek mythology. And so it once again shows a correlation between the fallen angels and demons and the gods and goddesses of ancient mythologies. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend, it is just a metaphor for a power base over the angels. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Clouds again. Remember, this was all written in poetry, so it's, it's a lot of repetition of the same basic idea. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Another metaphor, clouds are used various times in the Old Testament as a metaphor for the angels. And I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, I will be God. So that's Satan's agenda. He wants 
God to let him function as God and to show that he can do it. Now, there is also a comparable description of this in Ezekiel 28, 12 and following, which it says, starts off, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre, in the earlier lamentation or funeral dirge, in the first 11 verses, was addressed to the prince of Tyre, who was the human ruler. King of Tyre refers to the Amonot's grease, that is, the power behind the throne. And that was the unseen power, who is Satan himself. Say to him, because these things could not be said of any human prince or king. You had the seal of perfection. In other words, you were perfect. You were created perfect. There was nothing you lacked. God, When God created uh, this particular creature, he was the height of perfection. He was the finest creature to ever come from the hand of God. Next phrase, he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, which means that he was the most intelligent and most attractive and most beautiful of all the creatures God ever created. No creature is any more attractive, any more intelligent, any more perfect than Lucifer. Then in verse 13 it says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Notice it doesn't say you were in the garden of Eden. That's an important technical distinction. Eden is considered a technical name for the perfect environment of the throne room of God. Then there is a list of various stones, precious stones, that covered this particular creature. And if you compare them with the precious stones that are on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel, nine of the twelve overlap. And if you're a Jewish reader reading this, you would immediately think of the uh, priest's ephod, his breastplate, and of priestly function. So there is some indication that whatever he did prior to his fall, it was a priestly type of function. And he was dressed and uh, dressed beautifully. The gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. In other words, everything about him was made uh, perfect. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Another very tantalizing phrase because the word anointed is the word for being anointed or appointed. Mashiach, which is translated Messiah uh, or anointed one. So there is a certain indication there that he has a special task. He's a cherub, which is a particular class of angel associated with the holiness and righteousness of God and functioning in the throne room of God. It says, you are the anointed cherub who covers. I placed you there. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fires. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was discovered in you. So the point is that he's created perfect, but sin originated within him. He made a volitional decision to sin, and then the following verses describe how he used that to corrupt others and to lead them astray. So what we have here is a picture of the satanic fall uh, and the arrogance of Satan. Now, That can only take place really in one of two places scripturally. Uh, One is got to be here at the end of the seven creative days according to the 
scheme that these are literal and that there's no time lapse between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. That means that the creation of the earth and the creation of man would be irrelevant to what was going on in the angelic realm. But as I said, there are many arguments that uh, militate against that particular position. The only other place to put it, well, you could put it before Genesis 1-1, and I'll show you why you can't do that in a minute, or you put it here between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, but you don't do what Chalmers did and try to use that to compromise with evolution. I just want to make that clear because what happens is the people who hold to this position automatically this position that Chalmers put forth is called the gap view because he put a gap between 1-1 and 1-2. But Chalmers wasn't the first to put that there. And if you notice, I keep trying to use the phrase time lapse between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. The gap view is an accommodation view, but it didn't originate with Chalmers. The view that there was a lapse between 1-1 and 1-2 goes back to at least Jewish rabbis in the late uh, 8th, 9th century A.D., and they certainly were not trying to accommodate with evolution or Darwinian theory whatsoever. So what happens is these folks, as soon as you start saying what I'm teaching, they automatically have this knee-jerk reaction, say, you're a gap theorist and you're trying to compromise with evolution. And that just shows that they've closed their ears and shut down their mind. They're not paying attention to the text or the arguments uh, against them. So let's look at the passages. There is clearly a divine uh, judgment on Satan. Well, first of all, before we leap ahead to that, uh, we need to look at a passage in Job. passage in Job chapter um, uh, 38, verses 4 and 7. We're just going to kind of go through a couple of passages here to try to pull this together. Job 38, 4 and 7. Very fascinating phrase. Wherever, where were you? God is addressing Job here. Job is trying to get God to tell him why he suffered. God is not going to answer his questions. God is basically saying to Job, it's not up, you do not have to know why you suffer. You're simply to trust me. Because uh, Job wanting to know why he suffered and the purpose for his suffering is like saying, well, Lord, let me evaluate this and see if there's really an adequate reason here. Let me be the judge of things. So in his uh, response to Job, God is making clear that Job's ignorance. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Now, all of that is a description of the creation of the original earth, establishing its foundation, its bases, and and putting the matter together. And then God says that at that time that he did this, when refers to the time in which he laid the foundation of the earth. The morning stars, which is a term for the angels, sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
Now there we see the term sons of God is a technical term in the Old Testament, B'nai Elohim, and it refers to angels. It does not refer to believers, to human beings in the Old Testament. It refers only to angels. And we see that in the first two chapters of Job when it says that when all of the sons of God gathered together in the throne room of God, then Satan came out and brought a charge against Job. So the term sons of God refers exclusively to the angels. But notice it doesn't say that some of the sons of God uh, shouted for joy over the creation of the earth. All of the sons of God created, I mean shouted for joy over the creation of the earth which means that there's no division among the angels at that point. So, if you graph it out, God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. God then created the angels. For whatever reason, He created created these angelic creatures, Who and the term angelos, or malaak in the Hebrew, means a, a, a messenger. So he creates those to serve certain functions, and they are eternal. They begin at a point in time, operate in heaven, and then God creates the heavens and the earth. Creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. And they all shout together for joy. And then it is so, it is after Genesis 1.1 when they're united. place. Now, if you're going to have a, if the universe was created to be the habitation of the angels, and I believe that planet Earth was the place where God established a, an operations base in this space-time universe he created, and he established a throne room there, and it was called Eden. This is the Mount of God. This is not to be confused with the Garden of Eden later on in Genesis 2 and 3. But this is the um, primordial throne room of God on the earth before the angelic revolt. So God is here and it is at this place, this creature in Ezekiel 28, it said, you were in the Garden of God, in Eden, the Garden of God, and you were... You were there until sin was found in you. So apparently his headquarters was on planet Earth. Now something happens. This is the next stage in our exegesis of Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And we look at uh, verse 2 of Genesis, Genesis 1 and it says, And the earth was without form. Now it's translated uh, poorly there I believe. Was is a past tense of the verb to be, and it indicates a static position, the earth was. And the first word is translated with a continuative conjunction, and, which indicates that verse 2, there's no break between 2 and 1. However, based on a number of factors in Hebrew syntax, the three clauses of verse 2, the earth was formless and void, Darkness was on the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Those three clauses are dependent upon 
because of the way they're constructed in the Hebrew, they're dependent upon verse 3, not verse 1. Furthermore, in Hebrew, when you are writing narrative or story, and you go from one event, and then the next thing happened, and then the next... Have you ever noticed how the Bible does that? Then this happened, then this happened, and then this happened. It's repetitive, and it shouldn't be translated that way into the English, because it doesn't. it's not good English style. But that's how the Hebrews wrote. It's going this way, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And the Hebrew conjunction is called a vav consecutive. Looks like that. It's roughly just the letter W. And it is set up as a prefix to a word. Now, when you're just telling basic narrative, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, you have a vav plus a, plus a verb. In Hebrew syntax, the verb always takes the first place in the sentence. And then the noun. And the reason I'm writing it this way is Hebrew always reads from right to left. So you always have vav plus verb plus noun. However, if the noun and verb are reversed so that you have a vav plus a noun, then the verb, it becomes a disjunctive conjunction. That means there's a break between what preceded and what follows. And it should be translated the strongest disjunctive form. You can say now, that would indicate disjunction as well. But the strongest disjunction is but, indicating that something occurs between one one and one two. And the verb translated was can also mean became. And this should be translated, but the earth became formless and void. Now, or there are three important phrases that are used here. In the English, the first is that the earth is formless and void. Tohu vabohu in the Hebrew. The second thing that is said is that it is darkness. There is uh, hoshek, darkness, on the face of the deep. And this is the third observation, tehom, which is always refers to the uh, dark, tumultuous, uncontrollable salt sea. It's not used of fresh water, it's used of salt water. And it always represents, each of these always represents divine judgment in the rest of Scripture. For example, Jeremiah 4.23-25 through 25 says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void, tohu vabohu, and to the heavens, and they had no light, darkness. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. This is not talking about original creation. It is using very um, poetic language and uh, very figurative language to refer to God's judgment on, that was coming on Israel from the Babylonians. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. All the birds of the heavens had fled. The point is that you have two elements here, both tohu v'bohu and the absence of light are in a passage describing the divine judgment on Israel. So this is a place where those concepts are used to indicate judgment. Isaiah 34.11 says, 
but Pel- also talking about the judgment upon Babylon. But pelican and hedgehog shall possess it, and owl and raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. Tohu, indicating judgment again. And then a very important passage in the prophets, Isaiah 45:18 states, For thus says Yahweh who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it, he established it and did not create it a waste place. Tohu. He did not create it bara. He did not bara the earth a tohu. So right there in Isaiah 45.18 says he didn't create it tohu. And in verse 2 it says if that's a continuative conjunction, which is not, then uh, the earth would be, uh, the earth would be, uh, create, would have been created tohu, in contrast to verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 45. And then we look at a passage like Revelation 21.1. And, uh, in fact, you might want to just hold your place in Genesis 1 and, and turn over to um, the last book. See, there's a mirror image reflection between the beginning of time and the end of time. And remember, God, 1 John 1 tells us that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. So prior to the creation of anything, you would have light because that's the essence of God. Now what you have at um, Revelation 21, Revelation 21 Let's just skip down to verse 23. It says, And the city, this is the new heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, after all sin has been judged, and after the end of the millennium, and the old heavens and earth, the present, the present heavens and earth are destroyed. It says, I, I saw no temple in it. John is giving us a description of the new Jerusalem. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb, and the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it in the daytime, for, notice the parenthetical phrase, for there shall be no night there. Why? Because the presence of God is going to, His glory is going to illuminate the new heavens and earth. So, when you have the, you can suppose that at the very beginning there is uh, the heavens and the earth and there is life and it becomes something. And one of the things it becomes is darkness. Darkness everywhere in the scriptures suggests judgment and it suggests evil and it suggests sin. Exodus 10, 21-23 Psalm 35.6, Joel 2.2, 2, Matthew 4.16, John 3.19, and Isaiah 13.10. So darkness. So you have three things coming together in Genesis 1.2. It's not just one of these, but it's all three. Formless and void indicates judgment. Darkness indicates judgment. And the salt sea, the deep indicates uh, judgment as well. And if we look at 
uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. We have John's description of the new earth. For I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, it's not saying there's no longer any water, because just about four verses later, it's going to talk about, or five verses later, it's going to talk about the water that comes out from the throne room of God. In um, uh, the description of the uh, New Jerusalem, starting down in verse uh, verse nine, I believe, and following, talks about the river that comes out, and this is mentioned again in a couple of other places. So, but that's fresh water; that's not salt water. But there's not going to be any more salt sea. So here again, you have the indication that the deep is not something that is consistent with God's perfection and holiness. And all three of these terms individually are used to speak of judgment, so their combination, the threefold combination of these terms in Genesis 1-2 indicates that something catastrophic has taken place to the perfect creation of God that the angels had rejoiced over. Now, we are told then that there has been this divine judgment on Satan that's described in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, and we see the sentence, the indication of the sentence that is passed is given in Matthew 25:41, And Jesus says, Then he also will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, that's referring to unbelievers, human unbelievers, into the eternal fire which, perfect tense, has been prepared. Perfect tense means something that occurred in the past with an emphasis on its current status. Something happened in the past with the results that go on and we're emphasizing the current reality of that past event, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So that is the judgment that the devil and his angels would be condemned to an eternal fire. Question, why aren't they in that eternal fire if God has condemned them there? Something took place that has caused uh, God to postpone the execution of that eternal judgment. And that is, I believe, a challenge from Satan. Now, there is no scripture that states this, but this has been uh, the assumption and conjecture, and I think it's well-founded on many passages of, of many theologians throughout the centuries that Satan hurled a challenge at God. Now, this is what's interesting, is to break this apart in terms of different uh, things that are emphasized throughout the various dispensations. First of all, in a very broad, general sense, Satan challenged the integrity of God. How can a righteous God, you hear this today from many people, how can a righteous God or how can a loving God sent his creatures into the lake of fire. So it's a challenge of the character of God. How can a loving God punish his creatures? It's a challenge to God's integrity, which causes a confusion between righteousness and justice as somehow incompatible with divine love. And so God is going to demonstrate that his love is completely compatible with his justice and righteousness and that all of this is expressed through His perfect grace as exemplified on the cross. 
where his righteous and just standard is satisfied by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the gift of Jesus Christ is an expression of his perfect love so that God does all the work and man does nothing but accept it as a free gift. But as part of Satan's contention, you have to sort of read between the lines as to what would be going on along with that. Satan is saying, God, I want to be God. You're not just. You never gave me a chance to be God. Give me an opportunity to prove that I can be just as good as you and I can control everything and do just as wonderful an opportunity as you. So you can't be loving and send us to the lake of fire and you can't be just because you won't give me a chance to prove what I can do. So he builds his platform on a threefold ideological base. And that includes three attitudes or foundational philosophies. One is antagonism, hatred, or enmity toward God. Point that you should remember is you can never build anything positive by tearing somebody else down. No church can ever build itself by tearing down or attacking someone else's ministry. That's just negative. That's satanic principle, though. I'm going to destroy God by tearing Him down. Second, this involved a mental attitude of arrogance. Arrogance that distorted reality. And third, it involved the rejection of his divinely ordained role. It involves the rejection of his divinely ordained role. Now, one of the reasons that we can uh, extrapolate this is because of what is emphasized for the believer throughout almost every age in human history and what is exemplified to the utmost in the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, instead of antagonism toward God, the emphasis is on love for God. Instead of arrogance, the emphasis is on genuine humility. Because Jesus Christ loved God the Father and the plan, He humbled Himself to the point of obedience and suffered the death on the cross. And in doing so, He accepted the role of a servant. Jesus Christ said, I came not to be served, but to serve. So these are the threefold aspects and attitudes that God is uh, seeking to develop in each and every age. Because apart from those, the development of love for God, which, by the way, is not an emotion. We're going to get into that. I can't... uh, I want to make sure I make this point that this is not talking about some sort of of emotional, sentimental, superficial love, which is what we always think of. Every time we look at the Scriptures, when we look at passages on love, we see things like Jesus saying, if you love me, you will do my commandments. See, it's related to obedience. It's not related to how you feel. It's related to your submission to divine authority. Now, I know that we'll just end on this note. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, uh, so that the issue of authority orientation is inherent to love. You can't love somebody if authority orientation is not there. 
Now everybody can just sit back and relax because I'm going to slap everybody in the face right now. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Christ's love for the church involves submission to the plan and purposes of God. So men, a man cannot love a woman if he is not consequently submitted to the plan and purposes of God. Period. I don't, you single ladies that are out there, if you ever hear somebody say that, some guy say he loves you, and if he's not submitted to God's plan and purposes for his life, he doesn't understand love and he's lying and he's a fraud. Now, wives are commanded, they're not commanded to have agape for their husbands specifically in that passage, but all believers are are commanded to love one another as Christ loved the church. What Paul is doing in Ephesians 5 is he's applying the broad command of every believer to every believer to marriage. So we're all commanded to love one another as Christ loved the church, which means we can't do that if there's no authority orientation, and we can't do that if there's no humility. So husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to respect their husbands and submit to their leadership. The wife shows her love through her authority orientation to her husband. doesn't say when he's right, when you agree with him, when he's wise and smart and uh, has outfoxed you in terms of his uh, argument. It says you submit to his leadership when he's wrong, when he's stupid, when he's not as smart as you, and when he's making dumb decisions. It doesn't qualify it, just as we are to follow the Lord. The word in the Greek for for uh, uh, respecting her husband is the word phobaomai, which means fear, but it has the added meaning of showing great deference and respect. But it is as to the Lord. See, you're not loving Him because He's wonderful and worthy of respect, but because of Christ. Because you are a believer and a child of God, you're going to behave a certain way towards your husband, not because of who and what He is, but because of who and what Jesus Christ is. And that is true for the husband. That's why you love your wife is as Christ loved the church, not because of who and what she is, because she's not always who and what you thought she would be when you married her. And so you love her despite those flaws and failures and sin patterns because of who and what Christ is. And that allows us to get past the obstacles in marriage if we are what? Oriented to this third arena, which is role. The wife has a role, the husband has a role. Our society says you do away with roles. Anybody can do anything they want to. That's pure cosmic thinking. Because what we're going to see once we get into the fall and the curse is that the consequence of sin is it promotes antagonism, arrogance, and role reversal in the marriage. And that's what plays into Satan's hands and is his uh, attempt to... to uh, drive a wedge between man. So what we'll see in this is that in the angelic conflict and in dispensation of the church age, because of the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit, man can now fulfill this new law that Christ gave to love one another as Christ loved the church, which means that when we fulfill that as a mature believer, then the corporate witness of the marriage becomes a testimony against Satan, and it was the corporate failure of the marriage 
that led to the fall of man in the garden. So there is an important dynamic to Christian marriage that puts it in a unique place in the angelic conflict. So we'll see that these three factors play a role in every generation and every dispensation. Uh, Antagonism or love for God, arrogance or humility, and whether we are willing to live within the boundaries of our God-ordained role or whether we're going to think that somehow that is demeaning. It's interesting that in terms of a role, Jesus Christ referred to himself as a servant, but the word uh, uh, that comes from diakonos, and that means someone who has volitionally, freely volitionally chosen that role, whereas whenever it refers to man, it is doulos, which means a servant or a slave, and that emphasizes the absolute dependence of man upon God the Creator. So we will have to uh, we'll finish this on the angelic conflict um, next time. We got almost through with it. Uh, Matthew 18, Matthew 20, the parables having to do with the servant elucidate all of these concepts. And next time when we start with the Edenic covenant and the first dispensation, we'll see how all of these things start pulling together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time to study your word and to help us understand our role and place in history and how we can glorify and honor you through our witness and testimony in the angelic conflict. We pray that you would challenge us to rise to the uh, demands, the obligations, responsibilities upon us as believers that we might indeed be victorious and glorify you in this dispensation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.